Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Phil Blancato. I am the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer for Latimer Thelman Asset Management. First and foremost, thank you for dialing in today. We know your time is valuable. We'll try and make the call as useful and productive as possible. And at the end of the call, we'll open it up for questions that you may or may not have about the conference call today. Most importantly, please consider this call a beginning, not an ending. And then if you ever have questions or concerns about anything we do at asset management, whether it's the economy, how we're managing portfolios, marketing messages or events that we might host, or just anything really you need at all, or even perhaps a client of yours that may want to talk to us further about what's going on in the portfolios, maybe do a Skype presentation, please understand we are a, a department that focuses on service. We believe in it. It is our passion. So if at any time, just give us a call. Don't wait just for these calls to, to listen in more about the economy. Again, we want to thank you for dialing in today, and we realize that the, the things out there are maybe a little bit more challenging than we're used to, and that the markets today seem to be operating on a whole different set of rules than what we're used to. So hopefully today we can get to the point of the fact of what we're doing in LAMP and, and how we're managing around it. First and foremost, for, for those of you who, aren't, who know the LAMP program, I may bore you for a second, but for those of you who don't, basically the LAMP program is a, is a diversified portfolio of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. We very often will build a portfolio based on macroeconomic factors, and then understanding where the macroeconomic environment is, we'll look at the last 10 to 15 years of history. Based on the last 10 to 15 years of history, we will then make a decision to uh, invest in the portfolio in one facet or another. So look back at history. You had a gauge for what's going on in the macroeconomic environment. There are five economists that we generally read on a daily to weekly basis and that there are, uh, there are a number of folks we really pay close attention to, but I would highlight David Rosenberg from Gluskin Chef as someone who we really pay a lot of attention to and review daily. We will often listen to First Trust, Brian Westbury, and the folks from First Trust who we find their information extremely valuable. It, at times, historically, they've been on opposite sides of, of the equation and that they'll have different opinions on the market. So we'll use that sort of opposite analysis as a starting point to our research. So think of it this way. Look back 10 to 15 years to build a macro asset allocation. Listen to some of prominent economists that we pay for and, and learn from so we can find a thematic approach to the market, and then do our own research to make a tactical decision on the portfolio to whether increase equity or decrease, whether add to fixed income or take it away. So today will be a summary of our recent changes to the portfolios. will be a highlight on the economic factors that we're looking at and a little bit about our performance. As you all know, the quarter has just ended. And all you have the availability to go into Orion, our performance reporting system, and find out how the performance of your individual accounts have done. If you need help doing that, Megan Costello here at Latimer Thalman can help you with that. Just call the 800 LAMP line at 1-800-995-5267, and Megan can help you look at your performance of your individual accounts. We also write a macroeconomic commentary that is not actually specifically dedicated towards LAMP. We just really write about the economy. You can take that and use it for yourselves with your client. You can even put your own logo on it and forward it off to any client you may like, either in the mail or electronically. So if you'd like to use our commentary for your clients, please do so. Know that it's in every one of the performance reports that we create. So with that, let me jump right into some of the things we're seeing out there and get you a feel for how we are viewing the economy right now and what we're doing in the portfolios. Uh, a good friend of mine, someone who I have tremendous respect for, called me earlier today. His name is Paul LeBears. He's from Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. And Paul was looking at the front page of the Wall Street Journal 
and he called me up and said, you know, I, I'd love your opinion on, on what you think the impact of all our debt is and what this government nonsense is really all about. And it really is at the heart of the matter. If we spent the entire 20 minutes today, uh, 25 minutes, I would say if we just spoke about the debt and what's going on in the debt, I think that's what's on most of your minds. Uh, maybe it's not the only thing, but it's certainly very prominent. If you haven't seen it, the front of the Wall Street Journal shows that in 1993, we had roughly about $4.9 trillion uh, of total federal debt. And here we are at the end of, or the, near the end of 2013, and we have got $16.7 trillion in debt. You know, it's an incredible escalation. You know, you're three times more in debt than you were just a handful of years ago. And, you know, what is the impact on something like that? So, and how does that affect the, the, the current crisis that went off in, in Washington? And I'll call it a crisis because it certainly is it's a crisis of confidence in that when we look at the federal officials that we have in Washington and try and get a gauge for what they're going to steer, which way our economy is going to steer based on their impact, it's very difficult to understand how they hurt or help the economy. Well, first and foremost, know that when it comes to the debt picture, it's something we have never been overly concerned on in the short term. And let me explain why. Of the $17 trillion in debt, believe it or not, the vast majority of it is owned by the federal government. If you total up the debt that's in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the Federal Reserve, you've got nearly $11 trillion that belongs to the federal government. So the government owns its own debt. If, in fact, the federal government didn't want to make interest payments to its own debt, if the right side of the house didn't want to pay the left side, they could do that. They could actually decide not to do that. The rest of that debt, about another $4 trillion is owned, three and a half children is owned by all of us, the American citizens, pension funds, and all of us in kind. And about oh, $3 trillion of it is owned by foreign countries like China and Japan. So really, the bulk of our outstanding debt is owned by all of us. So if there really wasn't ever a serious issue around our, our, our interest payments, you know, it's actually there are other solutions rather than raising the debt ceiling. So I don't know that we're overly concerned about the amount of debt we have. Where your concerns have to come in long-term, there are twofold issues. That first and foremost, when you look out at the long-term implications of not funding Social Security, the interest payments you'd have to make, or just adding to it, you could argue our total indebtedness is somewhere around $100 trillion. And that's a whole heck of a lot of money. If you continue to add to the annual federal budget deficit and the number continues to grow, you're only going to have that many more interest payments to make. So while... I don't make light of the $17 trillion. I would say that in the big picture of things, you've got to rein in spending because of the impact it could have on the entitlement programs of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the overall federal budget deficits. When you roll them all together, that the problem becomes much more serious. In the short term, we're financing our federal budget deficit for around $350 to $400 billion a year because interest rates today are still at a very low level. 2.59 on the 10-year Treasury note is near all-time historical lows. So you can't get too caught up in the interest payments the federal government's having to make. In fact, the federal government's average duration is about five years, not 10. So the federal government's interest payments are more like around 1.8 to 1.9%. So they're financing their own debt for very low cost. It's really not an issue right now. But what happens if the rates go back to 60%, 6% our historical average? What happens if we get an inflationary cycle like we saw under Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, where the federal government's going to have to make interest payments around the lines of 6 or 8 or 10%? Well, then that is a game changer. That's a very much a game changer. That would be a concern where 
federal spending on our economy would go down because they're having to make more interest payments. But that's just not where we are today. So while it is a serious, serious concern long-term, the long-term management of the deficit is much, much more about what took place in Washington here than it is about the short-term interest payments. So I don't worry about the front page of the Wall Street Journal today. I will worry about it longer term. But I do worry about what does this level of debt have on today's debt market? What does a federal government shutdown affect the federal market? So in the management of the land portfolios, we have taken a stance that we feel, rather than speculate the actual impact of the interest rate rise or even try and determine it, we'd much prefer to take a conservative approach to it. So for a minute, let's assume that the amount of federal debt, the uncertainties coming out of Washington, and if nothing else, fair value of the tenure. What's the real number of the fail? What should the tenure really be at? And you can make an argument, a very legitimate argument, that fair value on the tenure is somewhere between 2.75 and 3%. And if that's the case, keeping your duration in your portfolio relatively short, having alternative types of fixed income are critical. So when I'm conveying a message to a client or a group of clients, my first thing I say is, yes, the debt is an issue. Yes, it's something to be concerned. It's not an overarching end-of-world calamity, but at the same token, you want to mitigate your, how, much, how much risk you're taking in fixed income. So we as a group have shortened our duration from a one time where it's as much as five years, actually it was almost a six at one point a few years ago, to now our average duration is three. Our conservative income portfolio's duration is 2.84. Our uh, income and growth, growth portfolio is 3.25. Our average is about three. And look at it this way. For a minute, I'll give you all some fodder to take away when you're discussing with your clients. If you have an average duration of three and interest rates rose by 1%, you should lose 3% of your portfolio. If you look at where we are as of today, at the beginning of the year, the 10-year was at 1.75. Today, it's at roughly 2.59. So you're talking about, oh, about 83 basis points, 84 basis points move in the 10-year. In the so we should have lost around 2.4% in a portfolio with a three-year duration. But when you look at the actual performance of our more dedicated bond portfolios, you could argue, I would argue that we're doing a wonderful job. Our conservative income portfolio is actually up for the year. On a net fee basis, it's flat. And on a gross fee basis, it's up about 50 basis points. Our enhanced income, I'm just about the same. Uh, so you look at those two portfolios, we're actually doing better than where we should be from a duration standpoint. In fact, all our fixed income positions today are actually flat to up on the year. So we're very proud of our fixed income management. We think it's been very impressive what we've been able to do. You look at some of the funds that we own, like the Goldman Sachs Strategic Opportunities Fund, that fund is up roughly 4% for the year. They went short emerging market debt, and they went short treasuries, and then they reversed their duration just right after that. So Goldman Sachs is up 4.21 for the year. Our J.P. Morgan Strategic Bond Fund up 2% for the year. And then perhaps you've heard me talk about how I'm not a huge fan of going anywhere strategic bond funds because I don't totally understand what they do. In a low-duration environment, they act as a wonderful head to the portfolio. So from an economic standpoint, yes, the debt's worrisome. From a portfolio management standpoint, shorten your duration. How do you effectively do it? By buying bond funds that are going to protect us, like double line with close to no duration or uh, Goldman Sachs with negative duration. Or the other side. You know, the whole world has gone to floating rate notes, and so have we. Our floating rate note position is up roughly 4.9% year-to-date. So the management of the fixed income portfolio has been critical. So when folks ask me what I'm doing from a tactical management standpoint, that's a good example of what we're doing 
from a pure tactical portfolio management standpoint. Now, having said that, I'll touch off one more thing on the debt, and then we'll move on to the equity side a little bit. For, to, to argue that the fixed income allocation of the portfolio is going to continue to be under severe duress is something I grapple with and I don't totally buy into. And the reason why is you really got to, you have to have exceptional global growth to be able, and U.S. growth, to believe that there's a rapid inflationary market coming at us. So in other words, how do you argue inflation or how do you argue a rapid rise in the tenure without any global growth. Perhaps you noticed, oh gosh, about I think a few weeks back, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece about the, uh, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, looked at the global growth today versus where it's going to go. And when you look at it, the United States is expected to go grow somewhere around 2% over the next 12 to 18 months. You look at the Eurozone, going to grow at less than 1%. The average globally of developed nations is going to be about 1.5%. You look at Brazil, a country we're accustomed to seeing growing exponentially, a 3% growth rate. China, where we're accustomed to 10%, 7.5%. The average global growth rate is actually projected to go down by a negative 0.04. The total globe, including everyone combined, all markets, a negative 0.02. And that's the IMF forecast. So you see what I do struggle with is that on a global forecast, you're just not seeing global growth that would then spur inflation. Don't want to make a bet on it. Don't want to be on the wrong side of that trade. So shorten your duration. Don't bring it to zero. Participate in the bond market. But I don't think you need to panic and run for the exits just yet. So let me switch over to the equity side of the balance sheet. And before I do that, I just want to touch a little bit about the government shutdown. I know that's on, the, on everybody's lips today and what's happened over the last few days. But in reality, in case you haven't really tuned in, oh gosh, on October 2nd, we sent out a piece that sort of summarized where we thought this shutdown meant. And that in the past, we noted there's been 10 similar shutdowns. None of them have lasted any significant amount of time. And in fact, this one was just about the average. When you look in the past, the S&P 500 actually rose 11% after the shutdown in the 12-month period afterwards. And in fact, you look at our annual budget deficit, it was hard to believe that this shutdown was going to be anything of significance because our annual budget deficit has been coming down. Now, part of that is sequester, which is a drag on the economy. Part of that is on new taxes, which is a drag on the economy. And part of that is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which kicked in a whole bunch of money unexpectedly. But our annual budget deficit is actually down. So when you look at that, it was hard to believe that this debt debate was going to be anything of significance. However, you know, so the story goes, we haven't actually resolved anything. The situation now is that the debt debate will once again rear its head sometime around January 15th to February 7th. There's enough money now to last us through February 7th by raising the debt ceiling. There has been a committee developed to look for long-term fiscal solutions. Hopefully they follow the Simpson Bowles track. No significant changes to the health care law. Basically, folks, that's a new tax. You strip away everything else at the end of the day. It's just another tax, nothing more than that. And then you look at some of the impacts of this. There's an argument made in the USA Today that of roughly $40 billion in annual output has been lost because of uncertainties out of Washington. But you know which one has me most kind of, uh, you know, I guess in question, out of what comes out of all this? Tapering. You know, back in June when tapering was first announced, we saw the bond market go haywire. Or May, actually, I should say, back in May. And then we saw Ben Bernanke backed off and said, you know what, I don't know that we're going to actually taper. 
So then they came in in September, and we thought the tapering announcement was going to happen, and it didn't, and the stock market roared once again. We saw volatility in early September, and then once it was decided not to taper, the market roared again. So here we are looking at the tapering situation, and you've got to ask yourself, when you look at the scenario and how we study this, it's hard to believe you're going to get any tapering at any time soon. Because one, Ben Bernanke's last Fed meeting will be in December, so it's unlikely we believe that he'll taper in his last meeting. Two, you've got a new Fed chairman, Janet Yellen, who's a lot like Ben. And three, the economic indicators that would drive tapering, so far we don't know what they are because we, the government's been shut down, but two, it's unlikely that they really will, um, will improve. So the idea of tapering coming off is unlikely. Then you lump on the fact that you have another debt debate out in February. Well, certainly they're not going to want to taper going into a debt debate because you've got another debt ceiling issue staring you right in the face. So the tapering is a stimulant to the market. And in fact, for a minute, think about tapering this way. Because the annual budget deficit has come down every single month, we're having to issue less new Treasury bonds to cover the deficit. The amount that we're tapering, the $85 billion a month, is actually increasing. Because on a percentage basis, we're still buying $85 billion a month, but we're only issuing on around $115 billion. We were issuing $150 to $175 billion, $200 billion. So on a percentage basis, the federal government is actually buying more bonds every month. So it's actually increasing the tapering. So it's actually increasing the stimulus, which is, which is driving the market. So at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself this question. It really comes down to this. Is this an earnings-driven rally, or is this a Fed-driven rally? So when clients ask you about the shutdown, it's simply enough to say they kick the can down the road. The market's continuing to be stimulated. You need to own a portion of your portfolio of equities. We believe you take a conservative stance because there's issues with the equity market. It's nothing more than that. Have a conservative, have a conservative posture until some of this uncertainty is resolved. And I'll quickly go through some economic facts, and then maybe we'll open up the questions. If you believe that this is an earnings-driven rally, and that's very fair, because there really have been outstanding corporate earnings for years. In the past, you may have heard me talk about how we believe the energy renaissance is going to have a major impact on the long-term earnings outlooks of U.S. companies and U.S. manufacturing. So far this earnings season, 75% have posted, only 19 have been negative, and, uh, only, and six neutral, so the rest have been positive. So that means over 80% of companies that have posted have been positive. So, I'm sorry, actually 75% that have posted have been positive. So that's really pretty impressive. So far, 80 out of the 500 in the S&P have posted their earnings. So obviously, earnings continue to grow and continue to expand, and that's a positive driver on the stock market. Some other things that you may have noticed when you, when you, look, when you look at the equity rally that's gone on, besides the earnings component of it, you know you do got to be aware that inflation is still non-existent, still really not a big deal. U.S. manufacturing continues to be exceptional. We continue to hold the line above 50. At times, it's been as high as 56 for both non non non-manufactured goods and manufactured goods. You know, so there really is some positives on the economic side that's related to not only looking at manufacturing and earnings, but then you factor in the consumer. The consumer to me continues to be very strong, and you could factor in the fact that retail sales have been up, and we're going into the strongest selling season of the year. All these are very positive stimulants for the economy. We have now made it through September and the bulk of October, which are two of the worst months of the year, and we've made it through not only unscathed, but the market is actually up. So you look at the S&P 500, and you've got to be somewhat optimistic that there isn't a major correction on the horizon. You're continuing to stimulate the economy. There are real positives out there, and that you really do got to hold on to this for at least the short term. So 
from a portfolio management short standpoint, we've shortened our duration because of what's gone on, the amount of debt we have, and the uncertainties in the bond market. Not got down to zero, but been conservative on our posture. When it looks at the equity market, you can't fight the Fed. And, and for that reason, back in August of this year, we made a decision to modestly increase our equity exposure. So, for example, in our growth and income portfolio, we normally had a 52% exposure to equities. We upped it to just about 55 to 56%. That number should be closer to 62 we're working our way back to the number we used to be. We can foresee us being at that number by maybe the end to the next end of next year. We'll see how things go, but we can continue to see a, an increase to the equity exposure. And the reason why we did that back in August was, one, we believe that there's a renaissance taking place in U.S. manufacturing. And for that reason, we added small caps to the portfolio, which have been a wonderful portfolio. We think the first asset class to actually benefit from an increased manufacturing situation in the United States will be small caps. And truth be told, the Morgan Stanley Fund that we bought was up 11.9% over the last three months versus the S&P at 3.27. When you look at what it did for the third quarter alone, the performance has simply been outstanding, 15.97 versus the S&P at 5.24. So really impressive. The story of the LAMP portfolios for the last 60 days have been the outperformance of our small cap stocks and our change in allocation there has been a real win for us, our latest move. The other part of the, this, the equity story that you, I think you've got to be cognizant of is that the energy impact is significant. And whether it's the fact that we're going to outproduce Saudi Arabia as the top oil-producing nation uh, at some point in, between now and 2020, or that combined, our natural gas and oil combined, we're the largest energy manufacturer in the globe, that has an impact on the portfolio. So both of those are stimulants to the economy and starting to see we're starting to see more realized return from that every single day. The other part of the land portfolio that has really outperformed, and I think something you want to be aware of, we generally have been negative on Europe. However, we have been bullish on emerging markets for a long period of time. When you look at the emerging market story and you look at the success of LAMP over the last, over the last 60 days, you've got to be impressed with the fact that emerging markets and international developed markets have really rallied. In fact, over the last three months, EFA is up 7.28%, emerging markets up 8.85, and the S&P is up 3.27. Our Oppenheimer Emerging Markets Fund is beating its index, the emerging market index, by nearly 9%, so really impressive numbers. From a macroeconomic standpoint, Europe is a little bit better shape. Now, what you don't want to think is that Europe is on some cusp of some major recovery because it's not, whether it's the fact that Portugal is about to ask for another measure of default. However, they're going to couple that with another significant amount of of, of, uh, of austerity, or that Greece is actually posting a positive surplus for the third quarter. But Greece, is an analogy, owes $300 billion. They may have a, f- a few million dollar budget surplus this year. They're never going to pay that number off. They've, been def- they've defaulted on $200 billion. They've got another $300 billion that they're in debt, and it's unlikely they're ever going to be able to pay it off. Will Germany let the euro break? It's unlikely. The German mark would go so high they'd never sell another Mercedes. So your, our, our expectations on Europe are that we could see a recovery there, a modest recovery, a stabilization, which is a stimulant to the overall growth of the, of the globe, but not something of significance. So you've got to be a little bit concerned about the aspect of Europe not growing extensively, but certainly better than what they were. So on the equity front, if I was talking to your clients at the end of the quarter, I'd say, one, the government's still stimulating the U.S. stock market, and for that reason, we still only need to own U.S. stocks. I'll say one negative point about the U.S. market. I've given you a few positive ones. The only negative point I would make is that the one thing we focus on that's a bit of a concern is 
when you look at total sales, sales versus earning is an interesting component of how we analyze the stock market. See, corporate earnings have continued to be strong quarter after quarter after quarter. But when you look at corporate sales, which should support earnings, they actually have either been flat, negative, or in some quarters slightly up. In the first quarter this year, they were negative. The second quarter, they were up 1.57. Earnings were up 3.5. In the third quarter, it looks like they're going to be probably flat. So our expectations around earnings are still very muted. So when folks ask me, if, I'm, if I get this question a lot, if we think the federal government is going to continue to stimulate the, the stock market and they're kicking the can down the road and there is this bond buying, why aren't we more aggressive on stocks? Simply because while the earnings rally is impressive, we think this rally is much more Fed-driven than earnings rally, than earnings driven. It's a combination of both. But at the end of the day, you've got to be concerned about that the sales growth behind the earnings just isn't there. And why isn't it there? Simply put, unemployment is still too high. The one negative that you've got to come back to, which is a bit more important to me than the federal budget deficit, is the fact that today there are roughly 22 million people in the U6 number that are unemployed, underemployed, or looking for work. The headline unemployment number is still roughly 11 million people, and it's not significantly improving. And so for that reason, today we still hold a conservative stance on our equity posture. We are not being overly aggressive. We're not significantly ramping it up. But as we see the employment number to continue to improve, if we can get GDP, GDP consistently above 2%, and if we continue to see wage growth, one of these we're starting to watch is wage growth. We have seen an increase in wages from the bottom of 08. It's roughly going up by around 2%. If that number can get up above 3%, you continue to see unemployment and a relative GDP improve, which, by the way, all of these things can be fueled by cheaper energy, then over the next 6, 12, 18 months, you can see us continue to expand our equity exposure. So I'll surmise the call and open for questions in this way. The government has given us another reprieve in the stock market. We don't think tapering is coming to an end anytime soon. Not overly concerned about the budget deficit today because the government's financing it for very, very cheap. Hopefully they'll come to some agreement on how much we'll spend on a go-forward basis. The stock market is continuing to rally because of it, but be mindful but underneath the Underneath the beautiful rays of sunshine, there could be some clouds in the sales side, so be mindful in sales and unemployment. And at the end of the day, we are very much in tune with what's going on in the market. We have taken a conservative posture because we want to lose you less when markets are down. We are prepared to get more aggressive when the markets dictate so, just not yet. And as we do modestly get more aggressive, it's because slowly we're seeing the rays of sunshine improve and in fact, the overall economy get modestly better. Remember this, though. We always hold an allocation to alternative investments just because we want to hedge to the equity side of the equation. So we shortened our duration to reduce risk there. We've been slowly increasing our equity exposure through diversification, but also adding to our, our alternative investments through go-anywhere bond funds, through the PIMCO strategic alternative fund, through um, MLPs, through different asset classes like managed futures that in case the equity markets hit some measure of instability because there is some major disruption coming out of Washington or there is a major disruption in the globe, we do have protection built into the portfolio so that we lose less when markets are down. So thank you to the federal government for giving us a little push to the end of the year here. I would be optimistic on the S&P 500 through the rest of the year. I would be relatively uh, less concerned about the overall bond market through the end of the year here because of the tapering continuing but overall, 
Take, take it slow. Be mindful of your approach. And most importantly, thank you for the trust and confidence you have put in us. We can't tell you how much it means to us. This call, doesn't, this call is not the ending. It is the beginning, as I mentioned early on. Again, my name is Phil Blancato. I work with 11 very talented people that are here to help you at any, and with anything that you need, whether it's performance reporting, building a portfolio, winning a large endowment, or helping mom and dad with a $50,000 roller IRA. We're here to support you in any way we can. With that, operator, let's open it up for questions. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Again, that is star one if you would like to ask a question. We will pause for just a moment for the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from the line of Mark Rutland. Mr. Rutland, your line is live. Hey, Phil, did you say that you have increased the equity and the growth and in income to 55? Depending on which portfolio, anywhere from 52 to 56, actually. I believe off the top of my head, uh, growth and in income is 55, right? Is that, for, is that from just growth in the equity position, or have you been adding to some of the small caps? And- the small, adding the small cap was an increase in the equity side of the, of the balance sheet. Is that correct? We actually added a little bit to mid-cap as well. Uh, but the bulk of it came in the addition of small caps. So we sold our emerging market debt position, and we sold our high-yield position earlier on, and we reallocated a portion of that to floating rates on the bond side and to emerging market, I'm sorry, and to small caps on the equity side. Our, we were at about a 52% allocation. Today we're about 55. Thanks. And at this time, there are no further questions. Thank you. I'll open it up one more time. Anybody have a question? Of course, you can always call in afterwards, but if you have them, we'd love to take it now. Please press star 1 if you would like to ask a question. We have a question from the line of Scott Emley. Mr. Emley, your line is live. Hello? Scott, we can't hear you, buddy. Hey, Phil. Hey, you are. How's it going, pal? Good. No question. We just wanted to say hi from Atlanta and tell you we miss you guys and appreciate all you're doing. Oh, we appreciate that, buddy. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, we we wish you could have been down in Atlanta with you all, but we, uh, we but we appreciate uh, the fact you give us some trust and confidence in, in you calling in. Thank you, sir. All right, operator, if we don't have anybody else, we'll let them go and enjoy the beautiful fall weather. Okay, we have a question from the line of Ken Buzzick. Mr. Buzzick, your line is live. Hi, Phil. Thanks for uh, your time today. Uh, if if Democrats get their way, we continue to spend more than we're bringing in uh, by hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Um, they're going to have to raise taxes eventually to um, counter that. Um, what's your take on taxes being raised and you know, the economy's what, 70% consumer spending driven, higher taxes means less money to spend. Any comments in that area? I mean, obviously, for all of you, many of you have heard me say this in the past, that we generally tend to be apolitical, that we really don't take a stance for Republican or Democrat, because if you do that, you'll get your emotions will get the best and you'll make mistakes beyond managing the economic outlook. Having said that, you know, I don't know that I would narrow it down to Republican or Democrat. I would think that You've got to get to a situation where, one, corporate taxes in the United States are the highest in the world. In fact, Portugal is going to lower theirs to 20% from 25% to try and spur industry there. So some of the obvious are on the tax code could significantly improve the economy. 
Two, you've got to get an agreement around the energy situation, that there's got to be a public and private partnership to get the energy out of the ground cleanly, smartly, and, and to market. And three, when it comes to the amount of spending that we have going on right now, and, and this is where the front page of the journal is right, you can't triple your spending and not, not think at some point it's going to have a negative drain on the economy. And truth be told, when you look at that situation, it is real, it is significant. However, there is an opportunity here within the next arguably three to five years to rein in spending if you get a, uh, let's call it a grand bargain, along the lines of keeping your annual budget deficit in line. Normally, you can overspend by $200 billion, $300 billion a year, and it won't be any impactful at all in the economic situation. Additionally, you've got to have some, some understanding around entitlement spending and that you don't add to that. If, in fact, there is no reconciliation around spending, which seems very unlikely because this debate in Washington was not about the debt ceiling. Anyone thinks it was doesn't understand it. It really wasn't about that. This is much more about long-term spending. And that it seems like there is a will on both sides to get there. And I don't know that to be true or false. That's my best guess. However, factually, if we can maintain the level of debt we have today, and begin to bring it down through less spending, and let's be honest, you're going to need some taxes along the way as well, but some com combination of both. If you can get to a situation where that happens, then the debt issue becomes less of an issue because we're finding it so inexpensively. Conversely, if in fact that doesn't happen, and we continue to have leadership that wants to spend without cause, then there absolutely will come a time when interest rates will rise, not because of a growing economy, but because our deficit is so massive, our economy can no longer keep up with it. Look at it this way. Will your annual GDP keep up with the amount of debt that you have? If it does, you're okay. If the annual debt, or the, excuse me, if the total debt, not the annual debt, if the total debt begins to outstrip the annual GDP, then we've got an issue. Today, we make around $16 trillion a year. Our debt's around $16.5 trillion. So we're okay right now. If that escalation continues, where the 17 becomes 18, becomes 19, becomes 20, and our total GDP revenue stays at 16, then we've got a real problem. There, I would agree with you. It's just not yet. So not to panic yet. Hopefully, cooler heads will prevail. Thank you. And at this time, there are no further questions in queue. Everybody, thank you very much. As I try to always say, uh, maybe too much so, we, we appreciate the trust and confidence you put in us. We do not take it lightly. We sincerely believe that what you, with the fact that you're willing to work with us and give us some of your clients' money to manage is one of the most important things that you could ever be entrusted with. So with that, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your confidence, and we look forward to seeing you all real soon. Have a wonderful fall, and I guess the next time I will talk to you all, as hard as this is to believe, could be after the holiday season. My gosh, I might be talking to you in January after New Year's and Christmas and holidays, and oh my, that's crazy. So don't let that happen. Before the year end comes, give us a call and say hello. And if nothing else, have a healthy and happy holiday season to you and your families. Thank you very much, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. This concludes this afternoon's teleconference. You may now disconnect your lines.